Hi, and welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice, where we use books to make sense of the ecological crisis. My guest today is Riley Black. She is a science writer and amateur paleontologist, and the author of the new book, The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, An Asteroid, Extinction, and the Beginning of Our World. It's a really fascinating and tragic story of death, and but also regeneration, life's fragility, and its resilience. And she writes of the dinosaurs um, in a way that's, I think, unusual for nonfiction, that she writes almost like she was there watching them or even inhabiting their minds. The Triceratops reeks, the first chapter begins. Even though only hours have passed since the immense herbivore fell, black clouds of flies buzz around its still nose and glazed eyes. Or later on, she writes of the Ankylosaurus, a heavily armored herbivore with a club tail, in the moments after the impact. The great Ankylosaurus had lumbered over to the edge of a lake. She goes on, no sooner had she taken that first cooling draw, however, than her footing seemed to slip and slide beneath her. Everything trembled. So it's this compelling narrative of dinosaurs and other creatures going through something unimaginable. But it's also a story of ecology and evolution, how dinosaurs shaped their world and how the aftermath of that asteroid shaped the one we live in today. I know most of the episodes of this podcast thus far have focused on present-day ecological turmoil, but in this and maybe some future episodes, I might also want to explore the five major mass extinction events that predate the present, uh, when many ecologists fear that today if we keep things up there could be a sixth. The fourth one, at the end of the Triassic period, actually paved the way for dinosaurs to evolve into larger and more varied forms, and the fifth mass extinction, the asteroid, is what wiped the dinosaurs out. Well, most of them, uh, because birds are dinosaurs too. So in the book, Black is clear to say she's not sure the fifth mass extinction event necessarily holds any lessons for the sixth one we're moving toward today. It would feel trite to use an entirely accidental and unavoidable event as a lesson, she says about the asteroid, as if it were a mistake or something under our control. She's right, we do have control over the present-day crisis, and the momentum of industrial capitalism is a different sort of threat than a rock from space. But despite that, um, Black thinks, and I think too, that perhaps looking at the long durée of deep geological time can help us make sense of our place in the world, um, an idea we explore later in the interview. So there's a lot here, and I hope you enjoy. If you do, please consider sharing this episode on social media, sending it to a friend or family member, or really anything to help get the word out on this relatively young podcast. You can also rate and follow the podcast on your preferred listening apps, sign up for my weekly newsletter to keep abreast of new episodes, and if you're feeling generous, please support this podcast on Patreon. All those links are in the episode description. All right, here's the interview. Hi, I'm here with Riley Black, author of The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, An Asteroid, Extinction, and the Beginning of Our World. Riley, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's always a good thing to talk dinosaurs. Yes, so... On that note, um, I you know there's a lot to get into about the book itself, but maybe just get us started with how did you come to love dinosaurs? Yeah, I think I kind of have the typical story. I mean, when I was very little, I know I went through a couple of phases. There was uh, the truck phase briefly, and then an elephant phase briefly, although I still love them. And dinosaurs after, so really like big and loud. 
was kind of what I what I liked for some time. And you know, I read all the books I could find. I loved the toys, but I didn't really get to see them until I was about five years old. And on a visit to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, I got to see like the actual bones that I'd seen in books or depicted in illustrations for so long. It was particularly the skeleton of what was then called Brontosaurus that really struck me. And this was back before they did the big renovations to those halls. So back then, they weren't kind of bright and open. They were relatively dark and shadowy. And I really loved that about it. It really added to the mood, I think. And I remember thinking about, like, what did this animal look like when it was alive? How did it move? I remember thinking a lot about sort of what its breathing would have sounded mm. like. Trying to think about all these bones belonging to living animals, which is kind of funny in retrospect, because now I know that those skeletons are made of, like, multiple individuals, and they're all kinds of casts past, patched in there and stuff like that, but as a kid, like, this is like, the animal, this is the dinosaur, and it really stuck with me, and, you know, I didn't think that I would get to grow up to be a paleontologist. Growing up in New Jersey, everybody tells you, like, we don't have dinosaurs here, which is fundamentally not true. If you're listening from the Garden State, there are plenty of fossils and dinosaurs in New Jersey, but I didn't know better at the time. I thought they were all out in the West. And eventually, when I went to college, I was running into a few roadblocks with my major in ecology, and I was getting a little frustrated. So I started reading technical journals and books about fossils. I wanted to see the original research that fascinated me for so long. And as I read it, I started writing about it. And it opened up this entire career of science writing that I didn't expect to fall into. And it just kind of built on there. So it was this kind of long fuse from like early inspiration to a career based around these animals. Yeah, I was a Land Before Time kid myself. Yeah. I, yeah, my, my current career isn't <laughs> mostly about dinosaurs. But uh, when I, I saw this book, I thought, this will fit. Um, and... Yeah, so you you fell in love with dinosaurs, you started writing about them, um, and you decided to write a book where these creatures that you love almost all die quite horrifically. Uh, how did the idea for this book come about? I'm glad you mentioned that, because it was a bit sad writing this book. There's a particular chapter where I feature an ankylosaurus, and the book is written in the sense of trying to put the reader in these ancient environments. There's you know species or individual animals or even plants in some cases, that I really try and zoom in to tell their story, basically a scientifically informed narrative. And I felt really bad for many of these animals that like, I was trying to bring to life knowing that you know, in just a couple of pages they'd be meeting their doom. And I think what really led me to write it was, you know, I've been writing about paleontology and fossils for more than 11 years now, professionally for at least 11. And you know, I always knew that the asteroid impact was like the primary idea around why the non-avian dinosaurs, so basically all the dinosaurs except the birds, went extinct. And admittedly, in some of my own writing, I kind of treated it as an event that was relatively straightforward. That, you know, you have a seven-mile-wide chunk of rock strike the planet. Of course, it's going to cause a mass extinction. Only the more I studied it, the more I learned, there have been times where larger rocks have struck the planet and a mass extinction has not come from it. The, the end Cretaceous event was really something unique and unusual and it was like the worst case scenario. And what really struck me about it was so much seemed to change in such a short span of time. Every other mass extinction that we know about has taken hundreds of thousands, if not a million years or so to fully play out. And at the end of the Cretaceous, we were dealing with a major extinction pulse 
that happened basically within about 24 hours, followed by about three years of increased pressure. So basically in an instant. So this sense of, you know, one day everything is fine, you know, T-Rex and Triceratops and all the other dinosaurs are doing what they do. And then just like in an instant, the world changes fundamentally, that this was not a protracted and grinding change because of uh, volcanic activity or something like that, that this is entirely unprecedented. Uh, both had never happened before, and thankfully it's never happened since. And yeah, just the unexpected nature of it. There was so much about the event that I feel like I didn't appreciate before. So I really wanted to tell the story, not about the scientists who are making the discoveries or talk about this from the perspective of a paleontology writer kind of doing a news-you-can-use view. I wanted to try and take everything that I've been learning, and that surprised me, and try and put the reader like back in, in those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of pop science books are rightly get into a lot of the, um, you know, if it's about dinosaurs, the paleontology behind it and how they figured everything out. Um, I think what really stands out about yours is the way that it's written almost like a, I don't know if you'd say a nature documentary or just like a, like you were watching animals alive today and, and just sort of writing in your journal, what do they do? Um, but you, you know, what, what are they thinking about? And just kind of thinking about them as, as creatures, um, helps, helps explain what you said too, is that it's kind of a sad book. I feel like I went back and forth between like, oh, like the science is so cool behind some of it, but then the effects are so, yeah, really sad to actually think about it. Not as sort of an abstract, you know, 66 million years ago big rock hit the earth and then creatures went extinct but just like oh what did that actually mean to be alive on the planet at that time yeah i think that's something i forget what the quote is but it's that difference between when you just hear a number and a disaster or something that happened feels very abstract and when you get to hear the personal stories from it and there is the science there's a whole appendix where i try and lay out where this is where I got this or that idea from. This is the evidence. This is where I just made something up because we knew I needed something for that part of the story. And I really tried to balance it between loss and recovery. That even though the book is called The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, and that's going to be the focal point, I think, for so many people, is the extinction that took some of our favorite dinosaurs away from us. Most of the book is about the recovery, about the resilience of life, that in a million years which is a long time, but it's also not all that long in the span of sort of the perspective of what we call deep time, the history of life on Earth, that life bounced back so incredibly vibrantly, really laid the foundation for so much around us now that we can look at so much of what's in our modern world and trace it back to this event and have that connection. So it was starting from, you know, you're kind of taking away something beloved, but I didn't want the, the emphasis to be on loss, per se, but to be on, you know, just like how amazing is it that something so devastating happened and yet life recovered in such a vibrant mm-hmm. way. So if you could set the scene a little bit for us, we we say that, you know, the dinosaurs ruled the world or ruled the earth or it was the age of the dinosaurs. And I think sometimes we maybe try to map on human conceptions of hierarchy or domination onto non-human ecosystems with, with mixed results where, you know, it's not, they didn't rule the world in the sense of they weren't kings and queens or even if Rex means king, but 
in a lot of ways, it does make sense to say that they had an outsized role. Um, so when we say that dinosaurs ruled the were ruled the earth at the end of the Cretaceous, what does that mean? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've struggled with that quite a bit myself in terms of finding the right language to talk about what the role of dinosaurs was in the ancient world. Um, because we often talk about dino- dominance or the reign of dinosaurs or the age of dinosaurs or when dinosaurs ruled the earth. And what does that really mean? And we unpack that a little bit. And it says, as you alluded to, far more, I think, about us and our projections onto the past and anything else and often our interests in a matter of dominance and control and being the most important. When it's also difficult to take a more scientific or more measured standpoint and say, you know, dinosaurs were the most prominent terrestrial vertebrates for a long time. Like, that doesn't really have the same (laughs) ring to it. So I'm not sure I've, I've found the language just yet for this. But what we really mean when we talk about the age of dinosaurs, it's primarily uh, the Mesozoic era, which was split into the Triassic period, Jurassic period, and Cretaceous period. So those are the three great chapters. And this was during a time period when reptiles and dinosaurs in particular were the most numerous and diverse and disparate in that they came in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Um, Visible animals on the planet. We could just as easily say as I think Stephen Jay Gould pointed out in his book, Full House, this was still the age of bacteria, that the entire planet has been in the age of bacteria for the entire time that life has existed, and that microorganisms are far more important, far more numerous, and you know, even these dinosaurs, just like us, had bacteria in their guts, some of which might have been necessary to break down plants or things like that. But it's a matter of perspective, and it's a matter of attention, and I think it's very difficult to look at something like a Triceratops or a Tyrannosaurus rex and not be struck by, okay, how did this thing exist on the same planet as us? And we've certainly built narratives and stories around those things. But when we say they ruled, it was primarily that when you think about ecological niches, you think about the roles organisms or species play in the world. Right now we look around us and we see a lot of birds, and we see a lot of mammals, and we see some um, amphibians and reptiles, like, you know, basically on land. You know, most of our planet is water. We're really a planet of fish more than we are anything else. But just looking on land, we see, you know, kind of the classic vertebrate classes, and it's mammals and birds are a lot of it. But during the Mesozoic, many of the same roles of, you know, large carnivores or big herbivores or, you know, sort of small omnivores or whatever it is, were filled by dinosaurs. And there are certainly other creatures around. You know, mammals originated at the same time as dinosaurs did and have been around for just about as long. Their evolutionary history is different. So I think when we say dinosaurs ruled, like they filled the earth to a point that they kind of constrained or suppressed the evolution of other forms of life. In that, for example, like mammals were incredibly diverse. There are fossil equivalents of beavers and flying squirrels and aardvarks and all these things during the age of dinosaurs, but none was really bigger than like a badger, that there was a constraint on how big they could get and what they could do and what could they evolve into because dinosaurs had so filled the world. So I think that's probably the most scientifically based version of that statement I can think of, that there, there were animals that were just so prevalent and so numerous that they dramatically affected everything from the nature of the landscape 
to the evolution of all the other forms of life around them. One of the things, so one of the things that I, I say in the description of this podcast is you know, we use books to help make sense of the ecological crisis. And obviously this is more about the, the last ecological crisis and not the current one, but where one of the things that really struck me is that it really just helps us make sense of ecology. Um, you, I think, do a really good job of imagining not just dinosaurs roaming the earth, but just these fully functioning ecosystems uh, that are made up of dinosaurs and microbes and parasites and, and you know crocodiles and, and other creatures. Uh, but that the dinosaurs, especially some of the large ones, really shaped uh, what these ecosystems looked like. Um, everything from, you know, how numerous the trees were to, you know, what where scavengers would hang out to everything. So what were some of the, um, yeah, well, I guess what were some examples of ways in which these big dinosaurs fundamentally shaped what the world was, what the rest of the world was like? Yeah, I mean, we often think about dinosaurs, I think, as almost isolated, you know, that they like ate each other or the herbivores ate plants, but we rarely take it to a granular level. So I really wanted to do that. I want to say, okay, what does this mean? What, what do they affect? What do they mean in the sense of their ecology? And one of the parts that I think that really comes through is towards the end of the book, when we're looking at a million years later, and there are all these really dense forests that are popping up in the habitats that used to be roamed by North American dinosaurs. And when you have animals that are about the size of, you know, an African elephant or larger, and they're moving through the landscape, much like mega herbivores today, much like elephants and giraffes and rhinos and hippos and things like that, where they walk leaves game trails. And if they walk in a place often enough, that land can start to get depressed to the point that like might form a pond or might start to form a different ecosystem or herbivores like triceratops, like eat certain plants that, you know, spurred on their evolution in different ways. But they also kept forests open that, you know, it's very difficult to move through a forest if it's super dense if you're an animal that's 13 tons. So much like large mammals in like Eastern Africa today, for example, they kind of probably kept their ecosystems relatively open. So you'd have like these broad clearings that are covered in ferns and cycads and things with stands of trees and with enough space for these dinosaurs to move through and of course you know the food that they're eating they're leaving behind their feces that organisms like dung beetles and stuff rely upon and dinosaurs themselves are kind of ecosystems where you know lice and things like that are living upon them so there are all these different layers and levels and then they disappear so we see things like we don't have this in the fossil record but in the genetic record of like feather lice so lice that we can find on the feathers of birds today you know avian dinosaurs that there was a mass extinction of lice with the mass extinction of everything else because their primary food source disappeared and those that survived had to evolve to feed upon new forms of life. Or the fact that forests started to grow really, really dense in the absence of the non-avian dinosaurs because they could, they weren't able to before. So now you went from these very broad woodland type environments to ones where you have this multi-story kind of canopy where you have the upper parts of the trees and the middle parts and the trunks and the root systems and the interface with the soil. So you have mammals that can evolve to 
burrow and climb trees and live high up in the canopy. And, like, there's all this, basically, space for new evolutionary interactions to start happening. So it's something that, you know, we, as much as sometimes we think about dinosaurs primarily interacting with each other, I think it almost goes back to when we were playing with, like, toys when we were kids. And it's like, which one ate which one? And that's almost as far as it goes. <laughs> where in this case, I really wanted to draw out where it's like, what effect are they having on the landscape? And they're doing that for millions of years, and then they're gone. So what does that mean? Is there, in a sense, where there are plants that might have gone extinct because they relied on herbivorous dinosaurs to, you know, to eat their seed pods and disperse those seeds all over, and then that's disappeared. We certainly have hypotheses about that with our own modern extinctions, things like, you know, mammoths and mastodons and giant ground sloths not dispersing seeds the way that they used to. So it was taking a lot of sort of modern ecology ideas and concepts and being like, okay, if we know that these things are true, they must have also been true in the Cretaceous, and what does that mean for how the world changed? Yeah, I think the way in which that illustrated how evolution works is also really interesting, just as sort of an interplay between the environment and the creatures themselves um, and how they they all respond to each other was, I think, just, I don't know, one of, one of kind of the most uh, compelling illustrations of, of evolution ecosystems in action that I've seen. So I guess... Before we get too far ahead of ourselves in terms of the recovery, uh, we should talk about uh, that there was an asteroid. Um, so everyone at this point agrees there's an asteroid. There's some debate, I understand, over, uh, you know, was the asteroid the sole cause? Was there also these volcanoes? People debate, but we're pretty, most people are pretty sure the asteroids were a really big part of that. You go into this a bit in your appendix, but is that is this a fair summary of the scientific consensus? I would say that's even shifted a little bit more towards the impact being the primary driver of the extinction. So the eruptions that you talk about are uh, in the Deccan Traps in what's now India, back when India was kind of this island continent that's slowly moving to the rest of Asia, like the Himalayas, or from basically India's collision with the rest of Asia that happens after the Cretaceous. And like during this time, all this tectonic activity before the asteroid impact and after, you have this massive outpouring of magma um, to the point where I think it's around 600,000 square miles were likely covered in basically magma that seeped out onto the surface and just all the greenhouse gases that poured out because of this. And for some time, because we know that there are other mass extinctions that were caused by volcanic activity, like at the um, Triassic-Jurassic boundary. So basically the mass extinction that gave dinosaurs their shot at being so important happened because of volcanic activity. People treated that as a leading cause, but there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago in uh, Proceedings of the Natural National Academy of Sciences um, that really made, I think, an excellent case that the volcanic eruptions didn't so much contribute to the extinction as that they kept it from being worse. And I got into this a little bit, where it's kind of ironic where you have this classic extinction driver that all this greenhouse gas that's being pumped into the atmosphere by these volcanoes at any other time, it might have caused an uptick in extinctions, but it so happened to accumulate during the impact winter. So basically the fallout from impact when climates were getting colder. So the astro, so the volcanic activity and its outpouring was able to raise temperatures just a little bit that basically prevented the extinction from being worse 
than it would have otherwise been. So nobody doubts that this volcanic activity occurred. But I think its role has certainly changed. And we can make an argument that, for example, you had the Western Interior Seaway, the shallow sea that once split North America in two, and by the end of the Cretaceous, it was draining off the continent, that the global climate was getting cooler, we were starting to get glaciation again, you know, water was being taken up at the poles, so sea levels were dropping, the seaway disappears. So if you're like a clam or you're a species of coral that lives in prehistoric Montana um, in this seaway and the ocean's gone, of course you're going to disappear or go extinct. But that's kind of in the background of the impact. There's a great paper called uh, Survival, Survival in the First Hours of the Cenozoic that was really formative in, in writing this book that really goes into how unprecedented and awful the effects of the impact were. So even though there have been plenty of ideas, I think we're pretty much at consensus that the impact was the primary driver of extinction. There might have been some other species that went extinct for this or that environmental reason that just had to do with other things. But when we're talking about why are there, no, basically at the broad level, why are there no more pterosaurs or non-avian dinosaurs or you know, various other forms of life that are around at the time is the impact that's the, the primary culprit. Yeah, so the uh, the image that I had going into my head when I started the book, which I, is outdated and, I don't know, probably came from some museum or documentary on TV when I was a kid, is, um, is asteroid hits... You know, maybe there's there's fires, there's, like you said, kind of this impact winter where uh, particulates from the asteroid uh, block out the sun and it gets cold. And, there, you know, with the fires and the, and the long winter, there's just sort of this gradual, like, starvation. You know, I'm picturing T-Rex wandering for days looking for food, can't find it. Uh, but... For most dinosaurs, anyway, it went a lot faster than that. Um, what, in just that first couple hours, what are some of the key things that happened? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up, because that's the image that I had. I remember in particular, there was, in I think 1993 or so, or shortly thereafter, there was a PBS series called The Dinosaurs, with an exclamation point, and it's a wonderful animation, and you still see it in GIFs now. Um, I love that show series, but it had this great animated sequence of these emaciated dinosaurs, a T-Rex in particular, kind of wandering through this ash-covered landscape mm -hmm. and collapsing because they can't find any food. And that's the image that I had for a while as well. It was all about the impact winter. It was the, this dust cloud. But now our understanding has changed so much. And really, what was the harshest, perhaps, for life was when the asteroid struck the planet, it hit uh, these ancient limestone deposits. Uh, and basically, the way that it hit, the force with which it hit, the angle, all these things played into this. So the area itself was pulverized. It was basically turned to molten rock that was like sloshing around more like a liquid than rock in the immediate area and sending all these like, huge tsunamis out in every direction that were so powerful that they actually hit the ancient, part, ancient parts of North America, and then rebounded backwards towards the site of impact. That's how, how much energy was expended in this, is that you basically could have like reflected tsunamis. But the main thing, the most terrifying part of this, the most violent part of this, is you have all this rock and debris that's 
shot up into the atmosphere. It basically, you know, you have such an incredible force striking the planet that so much is thrown up into the air. All these itty-bitty bits of rock. Now, any one in particular is not going to change anything. But all this debris got shot so high up into the air and is spreading so far over the planet that as it's coming back down, it's creating friction. And the heat from that friction is basically combining into an infrared pulse, so basically this incredible heat pulse that it's estimated raised the air temperatures to about 500 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you set an oven to broil, that's pretty much what the air temperature all over the world turned into. Jeez. So unless you're an extremophile like bacterium, there's no there's nowhere to go. No, nothing has evolved to survive those sorts of extremes. It was so hot that particularly if you had a dry forest, a forest with a lot of leaf litters and dead trees in it, it was spontaneously burst into flames. So now you have this heat pulse. There are wildfires breaking out all over the place. You have all this debris that's falling down. There are some places where we even have fossil fish that have little spherules of glass created by the impact in their gills. So they were still like sort of, they collected the debris as it was coming down out of the sky. And this was within hours. This happened within the first day of impact. And unless you could get under the water or unless you can get under the ground, there really was nowhere to go. So it's possible that some non-avian dinosaurs survived that first day because they were small enough or they burrowed. But most life, you know, we wondered about this for so long, like what makes the difference between the survivors and the species that went extinct? And there are a couple of different extinction filters, but the main one is you had to have some kind of buffer, some kind of barrier. We know from studies of modern wildfires, for example, that it really only takes about maybe 10 centimeters of soil to really be buffered from extreme temperatures on the surface during the heart of a wildfire. Uh, water is very similar, that the heat dissipates very quickly with depth. So you wouldn't have to be very far underground or very far into water to be shielded from this. But if you're an animal like an ankylosaurus, nerdmontosaurus, or you know, even a pterosaur, if you're a flying organism, there is nowhere to fly to that you need some kind of shield against this heat. And for most of life on Earth, there just there wasn't anything. It's estimated that I don't know if this might this seems a little extreme to me, but it is possible that the heat and the fires were so intense that basically if there's any organic matter exposed on the surface that it was basically burnt or otherwise consumed by this pulse. So it was almost like sweeping the planet clean. It was There's no equ equivalent for it in the history of life on Earth or anywhere else we've seen. We've had to kind of reverse engineer what would have happened. So if these estimates are correct, so many of our favorite non-avian dinosaurs, they didn't even make it to the impact winter, that they were gone within about the first 24 hours after impact. Yeah, that that was new to me and just pretty shocking to contemplate just the surface everywhere getting up to 500 degrees. And so, yeah, like you said, basically, if you weren't able to go underwater or go underground, you were quite probably gone within, you know, within the first day. Um, and then there was this impact winter, uh, which, which wasn't easy, especially with um, if there had been wildfires there's not a lot of plant matter left. Um, I think one of the tales, uh, you know, a more optimistic tale of resilience is is the way in which uh, birds with beaks, who are the dinosaurs who we 
still see alive today um, how their ability to eat seeds helps them here um, because they're not reliant necessarily on green matter in the same way. That's right. Um, so something that, I mean, I feel like I didn't fully appreciate this until recently. So during you know, much of the Mesozoic, the first birds that we know about evolved about 150 million years ago. So they thrived alongside their non-eating relatives. You know, there, there were birds that we had birds from the late Jurassic through, you know, the present. Um, but many of these birds had teeth and they are more carnivorous. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they were eating other animals. Some of them certainly did. But um, insects in particular, that they were sort of predatory birds. And some of those lineages lost their teeth entirely and had beaks and started to become more specialized on eating seeds and nuts and vegetable matter. And you can see this, some fossils have like gizzards that have some stones in it to basically grind up food because they can't process it otherwise. So just throughout you know, the evolution of dinosaurs and birds, you have tooth birds and you have birds with beaks. And you also have very bird-like raptor dinosaurs that are all around at the very end of the Cretaceous. And then in the Paleocene, the following time period, you only have birds with beaks. So why is that? And one particular study proposed that if you're a raptor-like dinosaur, or if you're a bird with teeth, you're probably eating other organisms of one form or another, of which basically that entire food source has been eliminated within the first day of the extinction. So even if you survive, even if you can get underground, um, finding food is going to be next to impossible in the following days, weeks, months, and years. Whereas if for a bird with a beak, there is a seed bank in the soil that there are still food sources for you. So that's really just like the happenstance that some birds evolved to survive on these basically resilient food sources, that they're able to make it through. Whereas if the extinction had been a little bit different and those food sources hadn't been taken away, there might still be birds with teeth or raptor-like dinosaurs running around. So there are all these different like sort of extinction filters that you have the main one being the heat pulse. But then afterwards, as the impact winter starts to set in, these other consequences start to happen, that you have these additional little sort of almost more individual sort of pressures based upon, you know, how, how are you able to maintain your body temperature? Where is your food coming from? Um, you know, for example, there are many insects that went extinct because they relied on particular plants for either reproduction or for their food or what have you. And those roles re-evolved much later after the extinction event. So, you know, you have this sort of broad swath kind of cutback caused by the heat. And then during the impact winter, it was more a matter of, okay, what are you, what can you do based upon your adaptations that you already have in a very spare and reduced environment? And some creatures just by chance were able to, to do so. And some just really lost the luck of the draw and there wasn't a path forward for them to continue to survive. Mm -hmm. So in the book, one of the things you do is you focus on um, what life would have been like in this area in Montana known as Hell Creek, uh, which is where we have a lot of, uh, you know, a very robust fossil record from this time. Um, and it's where a lot of famous dinosaurs such as Tyrannosaurus rex or uh, Triceratops lived. Um, but you also give us in each chapter um, little vignettes from 
from elsewhere on the planet what it would have looked like um, in the aftermath of this asteroid. And I, you know, I think we have a pretty good sense of why things would have been tough on land um, after, you know, after the the heat pulse and the impact winter and all this. Uh, the ocean is something I want to to briefly touch on as well. Um, I think from my recollection of the book, one of one of the um, killers there is going to be, uh, you know, the impact winter dimmed sunlight is going to affect photosynthesis, which affects a lot of organisms at the bottom of um, who who play important roles in marine uh, food chains. The other one, which is maybe worth highlighting, um, given that some version of it may come around again, is that uh, the ocean becomes a lot more acidic. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so a lot of, I'll, I'll do the second one first. <laughs> a lot of the sort of stuff that gets shot up into the air, not just by the impact, but by those deck and trap eruptions, include a lot of greenhouse gases. So we really have this combination of, of different um, chemical compounds and materials that are all put in the atmosphere and they're kind of working against each other at different rates based on like when they fall back out or how long of a lifespan that they have um, in, in the air. So part of what we see happens when just like a ton of carbon dioxide, methane, and other greenhouse gases gets dumped into the atmosphere is that you know, the oceans kind of act as a buffer in a sense and that these changes start to make the ocean more acidic. And when the ocean starts to become more acidic, it's not like you dip your towel in and you like feel it burning, but it's just enough that it makes shell building organisms, things like coral reefs, things like clams, things like even little itty bitty things uh, called foraminiferans or like armored amoebas. It makes it so much harder for them to build their shells. And I think in that vignette, I use uh, an ammonite. So one of these coil shells, like almost like a nautilus, but belonging to a different group of cephalopods, it's just struggling to build its shell, and there's some other factors there as well, like ammonites reproduced in this particular way, that they had a lot of very, very small offspring that formed part of the plankton, but ammonites also eat plankton. So in a reduced environment, they might have eaten themselves, more or less into extinction, because there just wasn't another food source beyond basically their own young. So they're struggling to build their shells, and they have this like life history quirk that doesn't work out for them. But the photosynthesis aspect really was one of the most awful parts of this in that you have all these um, basically sulfur-based compounds because the rock that the asteroid struck was was a limestone basically formed from a fossil ocean you know long before impact so this you know asteroid is hitting basically fossiliferous rock that's filled with particular chemical compounds and we know that these sulfur-based compounds that once they get in the atmosphere they're very good at reflecting sunlight so it's estimated that basically the amount of sunlight reaching the planet was reduced by maybe about 20%, which might not sound like all that much. It's certainly significant, but if you're okay, we're still getting about 80%. But when you reduce it to that point, it becomes very difficult for photosynthesizers to do their job. And so much of the ocean ecosystem, even in ancient times, is based upon photosynthetic algae. That basically you have this part of the plankton that forms the foundation for entire ocean ecosystems. It just disappears because they're not getting enough sunlight. And we see this in a group of organisms called uh, coccolithophores. If you imagine like a little disc, a microscopic disc that photosynthesizes or like a form of algae, and they can glom together to make spheres called coccolithospheres. 
they were a central part of the ocean. We see this in the aftermath of the extinction where all the photosynthesizing forms go extinct. The only ones that survive are those that were able to both photosynthesize and feed on organic debris, whether that was other small organisms or just detritus that was in the water. So it was really like these quote-unquote like predatory algae that were able to persist and eventually help the oceans rebuild, whereas if they, if they didn't have that dual role, um, paleontologists estimate that the ocean would have gone back basically to like a single-celled state, like something that had not been seen in over 550 million years. So the effects of the impact in, in the impact winter on photosynthesis was just incredibly dramatic to the point that the oceans almost entirely collapsed. And I have to wonder as well if that affected um, oxygen levels in the air, because we know even today a great deal of the oxygen in the air it doesn't come from our forests, it comes from the oceans, it comes from this, these forms of algae. So I don't know if there's been a direct study on this yet, but when you basically knock out the base of the ocean ecosystem, it's like taking a hammer to the base of a Jenga tower. The whole thing is not just going to collapse a little bit, but it's really going to fall all over the place. Mm-hmm. So it really was this happenstance that allowed oceans to recover at all. Yeah, so I think that there's a lot to learn from from studying uh, or the the end of the dinosaurs and, and the rise of you know, those creatures who, who came after, um, just in terms of looking at what the effects are of, um, you know, removing some pieces from an ecosystem, uh, can have these, these rippling cascade effects, uh, on the whole, on all the other creatures there. Um, we can look at effects like ocean acidification, which we know is something that, um, carbon emissions are, are currently causing, uh, but I think you rightly, you rightly caution us from sort of saying, um, trying to trying to dig too deep into what can we learn to apply in in the the current um, extinction event. It's maybe tempting, but a little trite to to try and um, draw any direct parallels to a literal asteroid uh, hitting hitting the Earth. Um, but I do think, uh, and you you talk a little in the book there are maybe ways in which it helps us to think through um, anything from, you know, the the tragedy of extinction to making sense of our our role or, or trying to figure out what a role could be. Um, and one of the one of the things here you talk about is this idea that there's no inevitability in evolution. Um, I think a lot of people maybe have this idea of you know, for billions of years, life inexorably marched toward mammals and then to us that, you know, this is, this is the pinnacle of animal design. Um, but looking back at dinosaur ecosystems, uh, it's not like they were doing something wrong or that they were flawed in some way. It's just that, you know, a T-Rex couldn't burrow underground when all of a sudden it was 500 degrees out. So how does, I don't know, how does looking through this perspective of, of deep time um, affect kind of how you think about the, the progress, if that's even the right word, of, of evolution or of how we got here? Yeah, when I look outside or I'm just out and about, I, it's really hard to look at the world as it's now not see some echoes, see some ripples 
from that offense. You know, even the fact that we're here. Um, one of my favorite little facts about this, and it still blows my mind, even though it's very familiar to me, is that primates were around for this extinction event. That there's a little primate called Purgatorius, one of the earliest primates that we know about, that lived in the same environments as T. Rex and Edmontosaurus. Um, it was very much like a modern-day tree fruit, this little squirrel-like thing. So it wasn't like a monkey or anything like that yet, but we know from details of its anatomy that it's more closely related to us and other forms of mammals. And this mammal makes it through the extinction that you find Purgatorius in the Paleocene. So the fact that primates were around at the end of the days of dinosaurs, and they made it through when, like, if things had just been a little bit different, they might have gone extinct. And you don't get... Evolution doesn't repeat itself in terms of these specific groups. You know, another group might have eventually evolved to be very primate-like or monkey-like, but that's the thing, that you've taken away that specificity. The history is now altered. That's a case of convergent evolution, but it's not inevitable evolution. And it makes the Cretaceous extinction really bittersweet, I think, in that you know, in a sense, I've, I've never gotten to see them in the flesh, and I never will, but, you know, I miss non-avian dinosaurs. They feel very familiar to me. I really, I've spent so much time with them and thinking about them and thinking about what their lives would have been like that it makes me sad that they're not here. But I know that if they were here, I wouldn't be here to even think about it. You know, when you think about the time scales involved, it's been 66 million years since the KPG extinction. So that's the extinction. If we think of one of the dinosaurs that was around that time, let's just say Triceratops. Think about another famous dinosaur, let's say Stegosaurus from the late Jurassic that lived about 150 million years ago. You do the basic math, and there's less time between us and Triceratops and between Triceratops and Stegosaurus. That there's more than 80 million years between those two, so you could fit the whole quote-unquote age of mammals between them with room to spare. And that's not even getting back to the very first dinosaurs or when dinosaurs became important on the landscape. So we are still very much in, I think, a post-Cretaceous world, not just in the literal sense, but in the fact that I can look outside and I only see beaked birds, for example, as we were saying, or that I see a lot of angiosperms, a lot of flowering plants, whereas if the extinction didn't happen, conifers might have persisted for quite some time, or just so many um, insects or other forms of life, you know, the pollinators evolved during the Mesozoic and were somehow able to survive and reinvent their evolutionary roles. So there's so many little endpoints that can take us back and tell us something about the way life shifts and the way that life responds and the way life is resilient. And it really makes me appreciate that we are here at all, rather than, I've never really found much meaning in um, the idea that we're inevitable or that we are meant to be or that eventually humans or something human-like would have evolved. I think we are incredibly unusual and strange animals. Even looking at our own evolutionary history, there used to be as many as like six different human species that we now have alive on the planet at one time. And now we're the only one that's left. And there's nothing that's ever been like us in the entire history of life on Earth. For over three and a half billion years of evolution, something like us really only appeared once. And aside from just discussions of inevitability, it makes me just grateful that we exist at all, out of all the chances that there are, out of all the different timelines and histories that could have existed, we're on the one that we're, we, we happen to be here. And it makes every day kind of a gift. It, it makes it 
you know, appreciate the fact that kind of the world is what we make it and it could change fundamentally tomorrow. So it's a little bit, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of moment for me, I guess. Um, but I, I love that, you know, the Cretaceous extinction in particular, I know I relate it to it personally because I went through a personal event. Um, you know, I came out as transgender and I started my transition after, you know, been thinking about this for quite some time, but there had a particular life event where life was very much one way and then I had a realization and life fundamentally shifted in a very short amount of time in the space of a day. Really, so much of what I thought my life was was different. So I related very much to this extinction that I kind of had my own personal age of dinosaurs and then everything flipped. And mm. even though there was loss involved in that, um, it grew into something else, something vibrant, something different. And it really told, taught me about the vibrance and the resilience of, of life. And that's where I wanted to put the, the emphasis that you know, we're often very sad that we've lost these ancient worlds that we want to visualize so badly. But um, it's difficult to find a word, I think, that's accurate for the sense of, of bittersweet, that it's lost, but it's lost that we're connected to, that, you know, brought about what I would like to think is something positive, which is our own existence. So it's the strange sort of inflection points in the history of life on Earth. Mm. It's funny, I... When I was reading the book, I thought to myself, you know, what would, like, what would the biosphere have looked like if, if the asteroid never hit? Like, what creatures would be around now? And obviously, you know, I at least am not qualified to meaningfully speculate, if anyone is. Uh, but the first thing that came to my head was, like, uh, basically the lizard from Spider-Man, like a, <laughs> a green, you know, a reptile in a lab coat, you know, on two legs type thing. Mm -hmm. And it kind of struck me how much I was sort of had this internalized idea of, uh, you know, obviously there would eventually be something like us. Um, and kind of how silly that is that, uh, like you said, there, you know, it's sort of a, a lucky happenstance, um, and something, sort of not to take lightly. Yeah, there was a thought experiment that a paleontologist named Dale Russell did back in the 70s where he had a view of evolution that he did think that there was some inevitability, that if the extinction didn't happen, that something human-like would evolve, because in his view, uh, humanity, like basically the human body and form, was something that was elevated. I, I don't share that view, but he came up with this basically thought experiment called the dinosauroid that looks kind of like the Sleestacks from Land of the Lost or the Silurians from Doctor Who or any number of other anthropomorphized reptiles like the lizard that, that you mentioned. And it's something where we've kind of run that experiment already. That's when we realize that birds are dinosaurs. You know, there are incredibly intelligent tool-using, tool-creating dinosaurs, but they're corvids. They're crows and ravens and birds like that. So we actually know what a very intelligent dinosaur looks like. And it's not like us at all. And that's what I wonder about. There's somebody, um, Mimo Kosman, who's an artist who came up with basically a revised version of the dinosaur based on this idea that kind of combined what we know about you know, prehistoric human culture 
with a more corvid or, or bird-like anatomy amongst these, you know, let's say these raptor-like dinosaurs became more and more intelligent to a level that would be familiar to us, a sort of awareness that's familiar to us. And you know, what would they do with it? They'd probably have to hold like sticks in their mouths to make cave paintings or like what kind of sort of social interactions would they have where it's entirely fictionalized, it's entirely speculative, but it's hewing closer to kind of what we know to be true. And that's what's kind of amazing is that we don't need, you know, the, the absence or even presence of the dinosaurs to understand these things. It's like we, we have all around us animals that have kind of gone through these evolutionary pathways in bodies and forms very different from our own. And I think it's very humbling to look at that. And especially when you look at us that we do not have particularly sharp teeth or claws, we can't run very fast. You know, there are a lot of things that we're actually not very good at <laughs> in the least. And yet we're still uh -huh. here. Uh, and it's, it says something about our you know, ability to survive and adapt and, and variation that, yeah, it's, it just really strikes me how evolution really relies on this combination of luck and adaptability, that it works with what it has in front of it. And if history had turned out differently, then evolutionary history would have been vastly different. But it's kind of amazing that, yeah, we, we got to this point when we had certainly many of our own, especially in the you know, post-Cretaceous history of the world, so many points that things could have gone otherwise. Mm -hmm. I, you call it in the book the single worst day in the history of life on Earth. Um, and I think that that is just such an arresting idea to me about something that was so long ago. Um, and in, in another section, you're, I think it's, I think it's where, um, you, in the epilogue, you, you go to sort of look at a boundary in, in the fossil record itself, um, and actually look at the line in the rock that represents the, the asteroid. And you say, I owed my existence to this disaster, but it's one that I might have elected to cancel if I had the ability. Um, and I just think that this is such a, a, a powerful idea, maybe in part because, right, because we already are all, like, the, the web of life is something that is, like, so beautiful and, and resilient and inspirational and, like, you know, a great source of joy and meaning to me. And also this really brutal thing in, in some ways uh, where lots of creatures die and are either are eaten or starve or um or whatever else um and it's kind of this like death begets life sort of thing um and maybe just a, a mass extinction is the most extreme possible illustration of this where there was no, obviously there was nothing we could have done um but you and i and the you know the the corvid the crow that just flew by flew by my window um are are here in the form we're in because of something really bad that happened a long time ago. Uh, and I don't know for me, if, if there's a, a trite lesson to come to mind, maybe it's be kind to birds cause they're the dinosaurs that made it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think just looking through that deep time perspective, maybe 
maybe can make us a little more grateful for for being here and also sort of help understand how we got here um, in a way that maybe feels, if not directly relevant, at least indirectly useful to deciding where to go next. Yeah, that line in particular, it's kind of an allusion to a classic philosophical and ethical uh, puzzle called The Trolley Problem, which, you know, perhaps folks have heard of, if not um, the second season of The Good Place, which I very much recommend goes into it. But this idea that if you're on a trolley and you're on a particular track and you're if you keep going forward, you're going to plow into, let's say, a group of five people. And if you switch tracks, you're going to run, run into one person. Which do you throw that switch or not? You know, the trolley is going to hit somebody. And which is the more ethical choice? And there's not really an answer to it. Just like with the end Cretaceous extinction, that we don't get a choice in the matter. And in, in the sense, there's no real sense of ethics around it because we couldn't reverse it even if somebody wanted to. But I like thinking about it because it doesn't necessarily need an answer. It doesn't need mm-hmm. necessarily an equation of, you know, ancient life was more valuable than life around us now. It's more of a recognition of, you know, dealing with a sense of both grief and loss, but also understanding how this event set the conditions for where we are now. Basically, it's, it's a moment of recognition. It's a moment of feeling the gravity of where we are in space and time and just having that perspective that we're able to, to do this, that we're able to look back and take these things in and, and maybe not directly learn something from it in terms of, of a prescription, but feel ourselves grounded in the history of life on Earth and what we would like life to be. And like you said, being able to look at things and really appreciate them. I'm often struck by this, and this is almost more of a personal note, but each day like when I go for a walk, I try and touch something that I see around me, a, a flower, a leaf, um, especially if it's a, a plant or, or a rock or something like that, and kind of use that, appreciate that sense, because I feel like so often, you know, we are very human. We're often in our own heads so often. We have all these other senses, particular things like touch and smell that are can inform us about the world around us, but we don't particularly use them. And I feel like thought processes like this, thinking about, you know, how do I relate to this other time period? What is my relationship to it? What did it allow for me? It's like a thought experiment version of touching a flower or a blade of grass, of using a sense that we don't often do, that we, in a sense, have a way of thinking through time that no other species, you know, until humans um, had. And it's kind of a, a gift and it's also a headache. But I appreciate that we have it and that we can at least ask these questions. How do I relate to these things? What do I want to know? And does it change my view of the world? And I think it has to. That's one of the reasons I love dinosaurs in general. People often ask me, you know, why are dinosaurs so popular? There's certainly a marketing aspect to it and aspects of culture. But I think one of the things that we keep coming back to them is that they represent so many big ideas that, you know, especially when you're little and you're getting to know what the world is, you go to a museum and you see a skeleton of something like that brontosaurus I saw when I was a kid. And say, this was an animal that was once alive, but now it's extinct. So that's one big fact that, you know, extinction is a reality that, you know, species 
sometimes disappear. And it was connected to all these other organisms, and they changed over the course of a very long time. And those are two other big ideas, that evolution is a reality, and that time is incredibly immense, and it goes back a long way. So really, just by looking at a dinosaur, you're getting three huge fundamental ideas about life on Earth, all wrapped up together. And just that by itself, I think, is an amazing thing, just to stand in awe of, that we don't necessarily need to do anything or you know, react to it in a particular way, but just to know that, I think, is a, a wonderful thing. Thanks so much. I think that's a really lovely note to end on. Um, is there anything you would like to add? No, thank you so much for the wonderful questions. This is a very, in a sense, a personal book. I hope that this reads kind of as a, if the reader and I were to go back in time, this is kind of what I would narrate to you mm-hmm. about prehistoric life and trying to be there. And I, I hope it changes the way that people see the world, not in any particular way, but just it gives a little bit of a different lens to what we see around us and, and knowing the history of how we got to be where we are. And just thank you so much for having me on and having this lovely conversation. This has been really fun. Thank you for coming on. That was Riley Black, author of The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, An Asteroid, Extinction, and the Beginnings of Our World. Thanks so much for listening. As always, please consider uh, supporting this podcast on Patreon if you are willing and able. Um, There's a book club for Patreon subscribers that uh, subscribers to the newsletter can also try out um, one meeting as a free trial. Our next meeting is going to be May 31st to discuss N.K. Jemisin's The Fifth Season, a fantasy novel dealing with climate and justice issues. Um, So yeah, consider joining that. And either way, have a great day.